In the wake of Me Too, Time's Up, and the growing list of public figures who have been called out for sexual assault and misconduct, it can seem like exciting, spontaneous, and satisfying sex is an unattainable ideal. That sex is too deeply buried beneath misinformation, violence, and shame to be enjoyed anymore. And yet, I know from personal experience that that is not true. Despite the odds, people are having great sex all the time, but they don't always get the chance to talk about it. Well, today, listeners, I'm here to change that. My name is Robin, and this is The Peak. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Peak, the talk show about what makes good sex good. Before we dive in, I just want to make a quick plug. Um, The Peak now has a coffee account, which is basically an online tip jar. This year, we have plans to interview sexual health professionals around the country to bring you all more episodes and content to pique your interests. If you want to support The Peak, you can find the link to our coffee account on our website, Facebook page, or Instagram account, which does not yet exist, but is coming to a cell phone near you. I am here today with my friend Saren, who I met through the Beto for Texas campaign. They were my manager and slash the best person ever. Saren, how are you today? I'm good, Robin. Thank you so much for asking. I'm doing really well. Good. Why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself to the listeners? Okay. Um, so, hi, everyone. My name is Saren. Um, I'm a political consultant slash community organizer slash activist. <laughs> um, I am also a non-binary queer individual who has majority of relationships with women or women-identifying people. Um, and my favorite color is yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So, um, my first question for you is going to be a little different than the first question I ask most people, because I know that you have worked as um, a sex health professional, and I'm trying to get more sex health, sexual health professionals on the show. So, can you start by just telling me a little bit about the work that you've done? So some of it's been formal, some of it's been um, non-formal or informal. Um, my work as a sex health professional stems from my work as a sex worker. Um, and so I am shack educated, which in the state of Texas just means that I'm educated and knowledgeable about how sexual education um, and the legislation that happens within Texas and the boundaries of why it is the way it is um, and how we can change that from a school board or district perspective. Um, I also worked in regards to sexual education as a teacher, talking about queer sex um, and ways that it can be healthy um, when maintaining relationships, but also physically healthy, you know, talking about um, dental dams, female condoms, male condoms, STDs from a queer perspective, um, and then also stemming from my work as a sex worker um, and navigating how I used my knowledge of sex education and empowerment in that realm and transformed it over to sexual health and education for external audiences. 
So what does shack stand for um, So I should know this. <laughs> but generally, it's, it's like sexual health. Oh, it's sexual health something. But we say shack just in the meanings of in regards to education within Texas and like okay. state education on a public level within the school. Cool. Awesome. So you've worked in like really three different realms, I think. So policy, teaching, and actual sex work. Um, can you talk? I don't know. I'd like to just like go through those three sections and ask you like, <clears throat> what were the highlights of doing that work and what were the challenges? Um, and like, what have you gotten from it? Oh, absolutely. Where should we start? Uh, policy. Okay. So um, my introduction to sexual education came from my sophomore year in high school. I was at a small public school in Waco, Texas, mm-hmm. and we had what was called the big decision. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going in and sitting down, and me and mind you, I was already a pretty like sexually liberated person, and so I kind of already had a grasp, you know, and as a high schooler, I was like, I know things you don't know, of course. Well, I sat down, and I noticed that so much of the conversation was heterosexually, like, explicit, um, and that there was a lot of information in regards to emotions and hurt that weren't clear. The kind of view of the big decision, it told you about, like, condoms and, you know, making sure you're safe, but the part that I didn't really appreciate was how it had this idea that women when they had sex, gave off this bonding hormone and they only had a certain amount of it. So if you had sex with too many partners, you wouldn't have enough of that hormone for your like life partner. And I thought that was so incredibly fucked up. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember sitting in that auditorium and Conley High School <laughs> and looking around and being like, are these teachers who I know were in their like mid-20s, are they really buying this bullshit? <laughs> Yeah. And here I am, you know, a 16-year-old, uh, you know, girl-identifying person at the time. And I'm looking around and I'm like, are these teenagers buying this bullshit? And I'm thinking, and at the time it was so funny, I was reading this, like, you're a feminist, I swear book, of course. Mm-hmm. And it just talked about how we as a society really condemn women and, and really, like, oh traumatize them in regards to sexual liberation Mm -hmm. and I found this as a way of they were doing that at such a young age so when I got to college uh, fast forward a couple years later and I had the opportunity to do conversations and speak outs around sexual liberation female masturbation um, and like female empowerment of sex it was really empowering myself Um, I learned about how social policies like not necessarily like hard policies but social frameworks set in the ideas that we talk about and the ways that we talk about sexual education and -hmm. the ways that we talk about sex on an education and policy platform then combining that with my later knowledge and understanding when I did check training um, about how Texas schools and legislation around Texas school and sex education are formed, how old some of these policies are, how they're never going to be challenged, and how basically when you look towards the legislation of a lot of public schools, but specifically in Texas from a state perspective, we see that it's very much female burdened, the burden of sex is put on the woman and the way that they teach a lot of this information. A great example of this is talking about, like, oftentimes whenever 
these companies go in and they do sexual education in public schools, they oftentimes talk about the woman being the one who needs who needs to decide. Um, well, not who needs to decide, but who kind of like has to do the burden of pregnancy. Like it's all about if you don't do this, you're going to get pregnant and it's all your fault. Um, instead of being like, hey, man, you should wear a condom and respect your partner because like you both will have to deal with this responsibility. Um, or like it was very much marriage and doubt. And you can you can Google or you can go online and see that a lot. Of, and this is across Alabama, Louisiana. But of course, here in Texas, a lot of our policies are kind of written not only in a very heteronormative way and like cisgendered way but also in a very like marriage concentrated way which as we're beginning to as we're beginning to get more comfortable um on a mainstream level with you know alternative forms of lifestyles i hate to use those words but we're gonna throw them out there like non-monogamy like queer relationships where people are starting to realize that a marriage was a tool created for ownership (laughs) Um, and even in heterosexual realms, women are finding that marriage isn't this end-all, be-all that like we should strive for. Mm-hmm. And so the problem comes that when you talk about – the problem comes that when you have legislation and policy that kind of is worded around marriage and getting to be married um, and, and waiting to do all these things until marriage – and yet society is like, who cares about marriage? You know, we're not worried about that anymore. These policies feel very old. They feel um, very left behind and they no longer serve a purpose. They're not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing, which leaves really, really, really incredible populations completely vulnerable with a lack of education. Yeah. I remember in Norman Public Schools in Oklahoma, We had, like, different focuses for sex ed every year. So, like, sixth grade was just very focused on the anatomy. How nice. Uh, Seventh grade was focused on, like, a little bit more learning about sex. And then eighth grade was focused on even more about learning about sex and choosing to be abstinent. They were very, very, very in favor of abstinence only until marriage lifestyle. And I will never forget the way that my eighth grade teacher decided to describe this to us. She told us all that we had these beautiful, pure white flowers within us and that that was our virginity. And that uh, if we had sex before marriage, our flowers would be destroyed. No! And that wouldn't it be so sad if you like got to your wedding and you were going to marry the person you loved and they were able to give you this beautiful, pristine, perfect flower and you only had a dirty and destroyed flower to give to them. And that fucked me up for a minute. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like, Like, it wasn't until probably I got to my senior year of high school that I really was able to, like, like, cut that out of my understanding of my body and my value. And I really, really hope that Norman Public Schools has changed the way that they're teaching people about sex. And maybe I'll just call them and investigate that after you leave. Um, 
But anyway, so what is the process of getting your like SHAC certification? Well, th- that's the thing. So um, I'm sure there are other avenues. But what I did was I was invited by a nonprofit called West Fund. Shout out to Sam Rometto, who contacted me while I was in El Paso. And they do a lot of conversations around sexual health and abortion access and reproductive rights. Um, they found that it was intrinsic for young women to understand how that we could organize within school districts and understanding population. And part of that was being shack educated mm-hmm. and understanding what a shack is and what it does. And and we can go a little bit in depth with this. And I'll take it. It's been a minute since I've been there. Um, but shacks are conglomerates or groups of people um, within this community that has to do with in regards to like sexual health in a public school. Sometimes they're teachers, sometimes they're parents. Um, and they discuss issues that can be... You know, they discuss issues that sexual health kind of targets on a larger level, right? So we're talking about populations that might have increased pregnancy, teen pregnancy rates, which ultimately to, like lead to food droughts or lead to, especially when you're looking at small land populations, high people populations, or when you're looking at low income areas where like an extra mouth to feed is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the projection of like education for those teen moms in that particular low income area and how that negatively affects the, the general standard and quality of living for these groups of people. Yeah. Right. And so being able to take that information and being able to trace it back to the lack or the inconsistent sexual education um, was a skill that we were taught to do. I don't know if it's in all shack education like trainings. Right. But it's just about teaching us that this is how you can bring forth possible policy change on a um, school district level right mm-hmm. like being able to go to your shack meetings or be involved in them or kind of champion um, a change in policy or direction that could really positively affect that community and being able to let them know that like oh we see that there's a heightened teen pregnancy rate um let's tie this back to the lack of sex education that the school district is giving mm-hmm. or the fact that there is a focus on abstinence only and it's obviously not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <clears throat> you, I'm sure you could also Google it and figure out how to be shack educated. Sure. Um, but that was kind of how we were. It was me and a couple other um, young women who are activists in the El Paso border region. And we went in and we kind of got a crash course on it. But what I later found is... That's only one part of policy. Um, and it's very formal, right? It has a really nice name to it. You're like, oh, this sounds interesting. But I found that more of the work that yielded some really incredible results were finding independent avenues to offer sex education in a school or within like school age children that maybe was around the formality or bureaucracy. Um, and that's where I want to tie this into my work at the Borderland Rainbow Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Borderland Rainbow Center is an LGBT nonprofit, the only one of its kind in El Paso. Uh, director and founder, Dr. Brenda Risch, was kind enough to kind of take me under her wing and really give me a crash course in education on the queer side of things, right? Um, and aside from me being a very much like, I'm going to make my own platform person, um, it gave me the information, the correct information and confidence to and the oh, the environment to be able to be in contact with school aged k 
kids uh, and have those conversations that otherwise they're definitely not getting in their school, yeah. right? Like queer sex ed, that's not happening in any Texas school. <laughs> you can't pay me enough to believe that. Yeah. And um, that, but it's still a very, it's a need, right? And arguably, especially among women of color who are at the highest or who are at one of the highest percentages of um women who are at risk for HIV and AIDS and STDs, it it lets you know that this is a very vulnerable population that needs help, mm-hmm. that needs this education, that needs this information. And the the Google can only tell you so much, right? Yeah. Um, and so when Dr. Brenda Rush kind of gave me this crash course in queer sex education, um, I kind of took it bit by bit and I not only would I find myself discussing whenever we were like hosting things or putting on events or going and doing like um, community trainings that we would talk about sexual education, but even when students would roll in for you know after school programs or when they would just come over and spend time in the center and they had questions, it allowed me to be a lot less formal about it, which I think was really helpful yeah. um, because you're not having to watch every word that you say mm-hmm. with a teacher over your shoulder. But it also allowed me to know that there's a large percentage of people who are looking for this information. And that by school districts and state legislation inherently excluding them, they're doing a disjustice to these kids. Um, because the reality is, is that though some of the kids can come into after-school programs to a gay house, basically, and mm-hmm. ask questions, there's so many more who probably never will be able to. So coming to the... The um, nonprofit. The nonprofit center. Yes. Cool. Um, and so the other avenue is like we would go and we would table um, at places, whether it's on campuses or at businesses, school fairs, you name mm-hmm. it, and we'd be able to give demos and conversations about the female condom um, or what you could do to protect yourself um, and, you know, instance A, instance B, instance C, or like getting on PrEP, which is, you know, very like gay male specific. For a long time it was. I mean, anyone could get on PrEP, but you know what I mean? Like being able to go in those avenues where Yes, we were able to be in contact with students, but even doing sexual education with adults, which was arguably where I got really, really involved because I ended up doing sexual ed conversations um, and being on panels on a university level um, and in a public level that allowed me to be a little bit less tiptoey um, mm-hmm. and just kind of get straight to the facts and just kind of yeah. answer some questions. And that's where I found not only were there lots of adults who had questions that were never answered from sex education, but these were adults who had been sexually active for years who were playing catch up because the system, because the public system failed them. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like this vicious cycle, but luckily we have organizers like myself um, and hopefully one day like you who go into these places and really share some really cool information and knowledge to help alleviate um, the vulnerability of these populations. Mm-hmm. What were some of the questions that people asked you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I would get everything out of the book. I remember I was tabling for the BRC and oh, I forget where we were. We were at some community college and I had, there was an older woman and you could tell she was kind of looking around. We were just tabling. We, there were other um, businesses and nonprofits around and she's an older woman and she walks up and, and none of my coworkers are with me and she points to the female condom. She's like, what is that? And I was like, it's a female condom. She was like, what do you mean? 
and you could just tell her like face was like I've never seen this oh my gosh and so I pulled it out of the wrapper and I kind of you know did the demo and explained you know you pinch here stick here this and the other it's good for this many hours so on so forth and then I threw in a little fact about the fact that like female condoms are kind of a hot topic or were a hot topic in legislation for many years. They were outlawed for many years. There's a lot of negative propaganda associated with them. Really? Oh, yeah. It's a really fun Google, like, venture hole if you're ever willing to go to Wiki and, like, look it up. But um, just basically the funny history around, like, a condom that's specifically made for the female body. Um, And she basically just opened up to me. She's like, I've never masturbated. And I, you know, I'm newly single. Mm. And she's a queer older woman. She came out later on in life. She's like, do I need this for me? You know, how do I know? Do I need a condom on a dildo? She's, she couldn't even say the word dildo. But it basically, I wouldn't say so much of a question, but a slew of questions Mm. that led to really intimate responses. That was, I think, probably one of my favorite interactions because here is this cute little old Latina lady, you know, Chicana lady from the border who basically, I think, and maybe I'm not sure, but I feel like I was like one of the first few people she might have told all this information to because sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger. Um, But she came up to me and was like, what's a female condom? And then just told me kind of her like, oh, she was she was married. She had three kids. She waited till she was in her later 50s to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, but she told me about this rendezvous she had whenever she was a senior in high school with this woman. And now that she finds herself as an older woman who, A, doesn't really know to, to use the internet, <laughs> and B, is finding herself within this complete different realm of sexuality, she found herself very confused and stumped on how to protect herself. And so um, that was really interesting. Another one that I found on more of a youth standpoint was masturbation. Mm-hmm. That is such a big topic that I think is so interesting because I remember even when I was young and it being so taboo, and recently, and I think also with the geography that I've surrounded myself, um, I've tried to put myself in spaces that are more like pro-female masturbation and conversations on the female orgasm and things like that. But I remember I was doing a panel at the University of Texas at El Paso in regards to sexual health. And I think it was like Queer Allies Week or something like that. And a young woman raised her hand um, and she was just like, because I was doing a conversation on why we should masturbate. Mm-hmm. All the great benefits behind it um, and how like you can't catch an STD and so on and so forth. And Again, it wasn't so much of a question, but she shared a story with me. Uh, she comes from a Catholic background about how, you know, she would live in a household where her dad would make jokes to her brother, her older brothers, about like jerking the chicken or you know, things like that. Very like masculine centered. Like, it's okay for you to masturbate. Um, and one day her mom walked in on her, you know, trying to have some time with herself and she got this, like, her mom freaked out and started crying. It was like, you know, we don't do that. You're not married. You're spoiling yourself for your husband. God's seeing you. And so she had this very, like, traumatic, like, you know, I guess, um, experience with, like, self-discovery on that realm. And she basically told me that experience only to tell me after that, like, being able to see these conversations available at her university really helped her become 
more comfortable with touching herself and I like to call them going on a date with yourself um and (laughs) I know right and kind of going on a date with herself and finding empowerment and being able to satisfy that part of you without needing another person Mm -hmm. so I hope that answers your question oh it definitely did (laughs) I just wanted some I wanted some anecdotes Mm. um so would you please tell us a little bit about your time as a sex worker as well? Oh my gosh, yes. <clears throat> so um, I'm partially surprised that I'm willing to be so forward, but I feel like there needs to be more visibility around sex work. Um, so my first stunt as a sex worker, I was in my early teens. I was 13 years old. I grew up in a really rough uh, neighborhood in the South Dallas area of Texas, um, and I found myself having to look towards sex work just because as a young woman in that environment, I was 100% sexualized and that was the only way to get people to listen to me. So when I needed to make money, but I had I couldn't legally work, that was the go-to. Um, and so at that young age, it was scary, but it was almost kind of like literally like getting ready for a job. Um, and so it was my introduction to sex work, kind of, you know, like a hand job for like $50 or anything that I could do to get by. When you're in that like stream of poverty, to be completely honest, you have to do what you have to do. And I don't think there's any shame in that. It's unfortunate that I was at such a young age, but like that's the reality. And if we don't talk about the reality of the situation, people aren't going to know that it exists. And it's going to be very alienating for the women who do go through that. Mm -hmm. So I happily will share that I was a sex worker at 13 and 14 years old, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, just due to circumstance. Yeah. uh, And not necessarily due to choice. However, going into my freshman year in college, um, you know, I was still coming from a place of poverty and I found myself needing money. I was working 60 plus hours at a, oh gosh, at a, um, a diner whose name I won't give, but this diner, I mean, it's a diner and I'm in college. Like yeah. it was horrible. I told the, my manager I could only work like 30 hours. He put me for 60. He put me for the overnight shifts when I had class at 9 a.m. the following morning and I didn't get off work till four. And I literally had a mental breakdown. I had a relapse in mental health and it was just something that I couldn't do anymore. And so I remember going up to the library in my school and thinking, how can I change this? Let's problem solve. You know, let's just just look at the options that we have before us. I had applied to a couple of their jobs, but I knew that I needed something that came with ease that I could kind of work around my schedule. And I had just had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a man who said he needed, some, excuse me, alhamdulillah, he needed some quick work. And so he did construction for a couple weeks and he got fast money. And to me, it was this very obvious, especially because my previous partner had worked in blue collar construction work. It's just very obvious. I'm a man and here's what I have to offer as far as like, um, physical currency. Um, and society has deemed that my muscles are physical currency. So let me use them to get real currency. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of took that approach and was like, here I am, a vagina holding individual, um, and I need currency. And society has told me this is the only currency I have right now. So I don't have a degree and 
let's let's figure it out. I began to immediately go on Craigslist. Um, I called a friend of mine who also needed some fast cash. And I was like, let's buddy system it up. Let's figure this out. She's like, I'm down if you're down. And we handled it. We That's went. really smart. I'm glad that you had, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like a business partner. So yeah, absolutely. Rely on and take care of each other. Absolutely, that was the thing. It was almost like we were like we were we were consenting and deciding to go into this realm of work, mm-hmm. and so we found seeking arrangements. It was right after Ashley Madison had got invested. We went in and we found seeking arrangements. We were like, okay, three avenues of sex work. We don't want to be on a corner. There's sugar babying. There's webcamming. And there's like escorting, right? So first things first, we went in, we'd Craigslist. You would be surprised how many ads there are for men who want you to clean their house topless. And that's where we started. It was about inching in, not diving in. So it was, you know, doing a couple houses topless for 500 bucks. And then it was, um, you know, doing some, uh, like fetish work kind of for photography Mm -hmm. almost. And it was like, okay, taking care of that for like a thousand dollars. And I was being able to work around my college schedule, which I loved school. And that was my number one priority. And I was going to, stay in school as like until I couldn't anymore basically I was going to do whatever I needed to do um and so then that led to sugar babying and that's kind of like a touch and feel you really have to like learn the ropes of that right so like do you charge per hour do you charge per session are we doing like a partnership what are your rules and stigmas and for me as someone who had been a victim of sexual abuse and stuff like that I had to instinctually put all my trauma aside and start drawing my own boundary lines because this is my work and if I didn't draw a boundary line it would affect me um and so I started having to be like I don't do if you have a wife no bueno um I don't meet family um we can be a partnership I can be like a girlfriend situation but you only get three out of the five days of me things like that like drawing Mm -hmm. my boundary lines kind of setting up my own structure that was really good having a couple johns where you did like you know 1200 a month from each while you're in college and all they wanted was like your time you know some sex and for me i looked at sex with these people as like these are my multiple partners like they i had this nurse whose name i'm not gonna tell he's a nurse at the local hospital he just worked a lot and had really bad like cleaning skills so i think Mm -hmm. women were not really down for him but you know i saw that he was just a man he was a good-looking man who just wanted someone to hear him Mm -hmm. and there were often times where even in sex work i was more of a therapist and a mom than i was a sex worker in the traditional sense um, and so after it migrated from cleaning houses topless to being a sugar baby um i found that there were moments where I thought about being a full-blown escort, but I realized that that just wasn't something I was comfortable with. Um, and so I, it eventually led me to webcamming. And this was where, like, you got to try a couple different avenues before you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. And this was the nail on the head. Really? Webcamming, for me, allowed me the flexibility that I needed. And it allowed no one to touch me. 
And it was an it was an ownership mm-hmm. of my body. And it was I got to say when I wanted to, when I did it. I got to close the camera if I just wanted to. You know what I mean? Like it was so oddly empowering because I got mm-hmm. to call all the shots. Um, so I went to the beauty supply store, got a blonde wig, you know, did my makeup real different, contoured my face more than you normally would, um, took down all of my like UTEP things, put up University of Michigan. Oh, that was an Amazon buy. I went on mm. Amazon, bought a whole bunch of U of, uh, University of Michigan stuff, put it on my wall, and was like, I'm a student in the University of Michigan. Love me. And I made mad money. Wow. It was like, it's kind of like your audience will find you no matter what. And especially being a bigger person, I've always been plus sized. And there's always kind of been that no one finds me attractive notion. Working in webcamming and kind of finding your niche and finding what works for you was really empowering in that respect as well. Because I literally just turned the camera on and I had an audience. I had a following. It was, I didn't even do it. Like, I didn't try that hard. I didn't, you know what I mean? I was just mm-hmm. like, here I am cleaning my room and some underwear and a hoodie that says University of Michigan. And they loved it. And people would say, I had a Amazon wish list, like it was the whole nine. And it was, people were really sweet. Sometimes people were kind of creepy, but like people would be creepy because it's sex work. What do you expect? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ultimately, um, my I found self-empowerment through sex work um, because it was kind of like I said, bringing bring it back to my friend who saw that he had physical currency as his muscles and used it to do what he needed to do. You know, that's a very common where men of color, they'll just get into construction or like blue-collar labor real quick to mm-hmm. make some fast cash. I wanted women to be able to have that opportunity and I wanted myself to be able to have that opportunity. And I wasn't going to let the fact that I didn't have the like societal expected muscles to, you know, to be able to, I guess, play in that realm. I wanted something that was for women that they could do. What currency did they have? Mm -hmm. And we had our vaginas. We had our sex appeal. So I took exactly that for myself and I used it as a learning and growing experience. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) wow i'm just really impressed with the way that you described all of that sex work is something that i haven't done a lot of personal research on i don't know a lot about personally so thank you so much for sharing your experience so openly oh yeah i'm i'm surprised i did as well and i thought about it when i was driving over here to record this with you and i was like you know what part of the person i am and the things that i stand for from a political perspective is about supporting sex workers and i would be it'd almost be blasphemous for me to not be open about this it is such an intrinsic part of how i found how i become comfortable with my body and how i find empowerment understanding and solidarity with sex workers and although my experience isn't all experiences and by no means do i speak for all sex workers but it was how i went into that realm of taking what i had and making it currency to play in the realm of the big boys if you get what i'm saying yeah it reminds me a little bit of Maya Angelou because she wrote about, um, like, she wrote about her own sex work mm-hmm. and it made a lot of people super <clears throat> uncomfortable. And oh, I'm trying to remember 
this line from Still I Rise that's like, does my sexiness... Does my sexiness offend you? Oh. <laughs> does it come as a surprise that I dance? As if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. That's just that's just all I could think about while you were talking about how empowering uh your experience with sex work was and how it was a way for you to not only like get a pretty decent income for yourself but also to have a real command over your body and setting those like hard boundaries and being in control and also like having people who just like needed you in this way and that was the interesting part right so like as women we oftentimes get the burden of like being the emotional therapist and and, and a lot of relationships but i found in my experience in my heterosexual relationships i was always my partner's like therapist slash mom i was Mm -hmm. always doing the emotional labor for the men and I wasn't getting anything out of it when I was, you know, just doing it because it was my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was getting things out of it because they were my partner, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, I found that being able to provide that was a way that being able to provi- provide that emotional stability and kind of support um, for these random kind of lost men, so to speak, was really kind of empowering. I was like, I'm that bitch. Like, I'd get in my car after a session. I'd be like... I feel like I really helped him. <laughs> Good. Um, and there's an interesting story that I just want to throw out there. Sure. Uh, so I told you about kind of my co-conspirator, my co- you know my co-peer, um, and how she kind of was like, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. She's also a woman of color, badass artist. You know, comes from a you know poverty background, needed the money to stay in school, and um, I I'm gonna throw this out here. There was a employee at the university we went to who sought us out um, via a Craigslist ad. Mm -hmm. And literally, we, like, tag-teamed it. And we, like, got on our gear. We had went and bought lingerie. (laughs) And we, like, got on our gear. We're doing our makeup, putting on our wigs. And it was basically, like, getting ready for, like, a performance almost. And there, I want people to understand, and it's not always, but... And a lot of the things that I found myself doing, it wasn't so much interacting in sex with these people, but exploring their sexual fantasies with them. Mm-hmm. And so this young man wanted to, he loved collar play. He loved being walked around like a dog. Um, he loved bondage. Um, and he was really into kind of like, um, what's the word? There's a certain word for this. Uh, humiliation. He, was, mm-hmm. he really liked that kind of like kink or fetish. And so literally me and my friend are just walking around in stripper heels and lingerie in her dorm room, dorm apartment. And like having this man on a collar and a leash and like yelling profanities at him. And that was a $1,200 gig, you know, and it lasted like two hours. That was it. He didn't touch us. Nothing. Like he just wanted, he just wanted to feel that. He wanted to explore that. Um, and I, th- I think that was probably one of the most interesting things because not only was it like me and her feel safe because we're a team at this point, um, but it was also like we were almost like we were running a business. Um, and he had other friends who also wanted to live out their fantasies and we were able to do that for them. And so I just thought it was really interesting and ironic being in a dorm room. <laughs> 
But also, like, kind of appropriate because, I mean, even though you were at UTEP where it was very affordable, it's like, school's still so expensive. So expensive. Yeah. yeah. I was curious. Um, so when you were uh, young and mm-hmm. just getting... Um, I don't know, just sort of putting your foot in the door of sex work. I was curious if you um, had other sex workers around you who were sort of modeling that, like, business framework. Like, did you have a mentor? Did Um, you have, like, any kind of, like, madame or someone (laughs) who was helping you out? I had a friend of mine who kind of introduced me to it. This... um, and ironically, to intersect with my queer identity, I was also in love with her. Uh. Yeah, she was my first love. Uh, my first lady love. But she, I think, unknowingly got her foot in sex work. And in her own way, I kind of saw her exchanging her sex for the things that she needed. And I was like, okay, here I am, a poor person who has to steal food from the Brookshires down the street all the time. How do I how do I, yes, this is what I need to do. How do I do this? Um, and she kind of like taught me cause I didn't have parents. She kind of taught me like, this is what this is. This is what you do here. This is how you do this. And especially like from a queer person who like, there wasn't this natural instinct to like be with men by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very much performative. And I think as an intersect with my queer identity to also talk about, like, sex works for me is performative, and I think I was able to disconnect it from an emotional standpoint because I'm gay <laughs> um, and because I see it as a performance. Yeah. Um, and so when I was younger and I kind of saw her doing this, and I literally just mimicked it. I literally just saw the action and was like, okay, now I need to do this. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to have the flexibility and currency um to get the things that I needed to survive. Mm. Yeah. I don't think she knew that she mentored me, but in very, very distinct ways, she was teaching me these things, this skill, this framework, and it always stuck with me. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that so much. That was such a wonderful thing to get to have on the show. <laughs> of course, of course. So... I would like to now move into the part of the interview where I just ask you all of your intimate secrets. Um, Will you please talk about your sexual personality and identity, which you've already talked about a bit, but... Um, So I love that you phrased it as a sexual personality, because as I grow in my own sexual experience, that's exactly what I'm identifying, right? I'm learning my personality in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I find myself, there was a long time where, like, you know, a lot of queer women, I was dating men. Um, and I was having sexual relations with men, not knowing, or this is before I'd ever had a sexual relation with a woman. And I was kind of like, I guess this is okay. Well, I'm always unsatisfied though, but they're really nice guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for a while, I thought that was all there was for sex for me. I was like, maybe there's something wrong with me. Uh, maybe I'm broken. Um, cause I'd never had an orgasm with a man, even though I faked him. Oh, I should have gotten an Emmy for half the orgasms I faked, let me tell you. Or an Oscar, whatever award show. But um, 
so yeah, faked them many and many and many and many and many years. And then I met a woman and realized that the things that I was looking for in a sexual experience with a man were not actually things that I wanted out of a healthy sexual partner. They were things that I wanted out of my own internalized, like, weird relationship that I had with men. Um, and so as I found, and I feel very novice still, and my relationships with women, as I became sexually active with women, I found that I was a completely different person in the bedroom. And I became a much more intimate lover. Um but also, like, a hungry lover. Um, and so if I had to describe my personality currently in the bedroom, I would say insatiable. Ooh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my, that's my two cents there. Nice. <laughs> and do you ascribe to any, like, sexual label? Um, can you give me an example? Like, do you use the word buy for yourself or queer or gay or like all of them I, you know as someone who does academic work in the realm of like gender and sexuality and like homosexuality there is like more of a i think in our generation a move towards the word queer mm-hmm. but for me after i was like really like consistently having sex with a woman i was like never going back so i just use like lesbian and anyone who's lesbian identified um and Especially, like, to make a stern stance and, like, trans masculine people or, like, trans women. Like, regardless, like, if you are willing to be in a relationship with me, whether you're, like, woman identified or not, um, I, you know, we can have that personal conversation. But, like, I guess queer. Lesbian and queer, kind of that back and forth. Um, because it is kind of more of an umbrella term and it does encompass everyone. And I am okay with kind of everyone, but definitely queer, queer people for sure. So yeah. Cool. So will you talk to us about your very first, it can be your very first sexual experience or it can be a significant early sexual experience? Um, so I've gotten to this point in my life where I realized that the sexual experiences I was having with men, I don't count them anymore, which is funny because they make up majority of my sexual experience as a 22-year-old AFAB individual. Um, but for the sake of this conversation and insight, I'm going to share some. So an early sexual experience, I will say my partner who I was you know, living with and stuff in high school, um... I will tell you a time where we skipped school to have sex on my period. Ah! (laughs) And again, we were like 15 years old or 16 or something like that. Um, And I think it was like one of those like half days at school. And at the time we were living together. So I got to like call the school and be like, I'm not coming into school today. You know, I don't really care. And so originally we were just staying home because we didn't want to wake up and go to school. But that led to us staying home and deciding for the first time in our relationship, you know, we loved each other enough that we were going to try and have sex on my period because I was feeling very emotionally needy and I needed to feel, like, very connected to him. And that's how we, like, that was our quick fix. So, and again, we're, like, 16-year-old kids, right? I don't really know my body. He doesn't really know his body. We kind of know how to have sex, but it's really just a whole bunch of grunting. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> and so I remember him going to go get this blue towel from the like hallway bathroom. And we Googled, and I was like, is it okay to, like, have sex in your period? And I read that it actually helped with cramping. And I was like, whoop, this is what we're doing, because I'm in a lot of pain. Um, and so um, he goes to lay the towel out, and we start, you know, foreplay, and we're kissing, we're touching. And, you know, we did love each other, and so we're trying to, like, you know, get into that realm, because it's not like we're having sex because we're craving, like, just, like, sexual experience. It's because we want to be intimate. Um, and because I'm going through this, like, really, like, physically hard time. And so we start having sex. This is hilarious. We start having sex, and, you know, it starts going faster, and we, like, it finishes and stuff, and we, like, don't realize it. And he pulls out, and he stands up, and there's blood all up and down his chest. <laughs> and it's just, like, ever his thighs. He's a hairy guy. Uh, and just, it looks like he murdered someone. And you just, like, see it everywhere. And what's funny is, like, I barely had a little on my inner thigh, but it never got on the towel. There was, like, a drip. And just, for whatever the reason, it just got all over him. And he, like, freaked out. He, like, fainted. And then I started <laughs> crying. Oh, <no. laughs> it was hilarious. At the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, he hates me. Oh, I just killed him. Like... <laughs> Because he had never fainted oh, no. when he saw blood. He, like, cut his hand before. Like, he wasn't he wasn't one of those people who, like, faints he, when they see blood. Did he, like, fall over? He, like, over? fell. He, like, lost, like, feeling, like, life. Like, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I immediately, because I was on my period, started bawling. I started crying. Oh. And I was like, I'm so ugly. Oh, and I was like, do I call 911? We're supposed to be at school. I don't know what to do. We're like 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, like put on like a big t-shirt, ran into the kitchen and got like a cup of ice water and just like threw it on him. And he was like, he looked down and he's like, what the fuck? And he wasn't mad or anything. He was like, I didn't know this was going to happen. I was like, I didn't either. But it was it was that kind of like first experience. And thank God I was with a person I cared about a lot yeah. where we were looking into something new, right? Something that naturally happens with the body, but something they never prepare you for. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever talks about sex on their period. And it's like... We did it, and then this happened, and then he fainted. Um, and so it was an inside joke for the rest of our relationship, needless to say. But I just thought that was a really funny kind of early experience. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that's hilarious, you poor angels. Um, do you, so, um, do you remember the first time you had sex with this partner? With this partner? With him. I was going over his house after band practice <laughs> and <clears throat> and I remember kissing him and like we'd had some you know heavy makeout sessions and stuff like that but I remember we got into a makeout sesh and then finally I was like let's have sex and I had planned it in my head I was like we're gonna have sex I'm shaved you know all the things that you plan in your head um and so I remember because I was a lot more experienced than him. <coughs> Excuse me. And I remember us having sex and him almost feeling confused by what he was feeling. Mm. Um, and I think it's because it was also the first time him having a condom on. And he 
was circumcised um and so i think it blocked some of like the nerve receptors or something i don't really know Mm -hmm. but i think it's just he was really like this feels good but i don't really this is new to me um and so as someone who had done sex work earlier in their years and someone who'd had you know a couple sex partners before then (coughs) um thank you at the end of it when he didn't like come and as a woman, when I'm taught that's the only thing that is my job during sex, and I still very much had that mentality at that age, um, I was like, what happened? Why didn't you come? Like, uh, do you not want me? And this is kind of like my first partner um, within my like mid to like, you know, later teens where I felt really like like emotionally attached to this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt kind of rejected a little because he didn't finish and I didn't understand. At the time, there was no Cosmo Teen article, nor should there have been, about, oh, the first time you had sex with your boyfriend, he didn't finish. What does that mean for you? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> this means that you are cursed to spinsterhood. Yeah. You're a failure of a woman. That's exactly what I thought. And we had sex a couple more times after that. And he never finished. Yeah. And it wasn't until really we moved in together that he started being able to finish which you know i think is so interesting because here was a 15 year old boy should have finished in like less than a second like it should have been like a two minute quick there it goes but it wasn't and it was it, it was a very for how young we were in that relationship the sex we had was more emotionally under like it was more of like emotional growth than I think sexual growth I guess our bodies were doing that but it was more so like for the first time we felt on a very different level connected to another human you know and for us to have experiences like that when we're 15 and 16 was out of this world you're like crying you know after sex or or you know just being so intimate and vulnerable with a person at such a young age um dare i say it was it it was in its own way life-changing from an emotional standpoint wow yeah (laughs) how beautiful though yes absolutely this person and i you know, like I said earlier in this conversation, I oftentimes devalue and disregard the sex I've had with men because from a sexual standpoint, I don't see that I learned or grew anything from there. But with this particular partner, and this was my last male partner that I ever had sex with, this was very much an emotional... It was the first time I knew I could just love someone. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't realize it was platonic, but I loved them so much and wanted them to be cared for and taken care of so much mm-hmm. during that time of sex. And that was, sex was the way that I showed that, um, even if it was performative, mm-hmm. that it was just, it was overwhelmingly emotional in such a positive way. Mm-hmm. He sounds like a, he, like he was a very sweet young man. He, he was very different. Yeah. I, I sort of imagine it because, I mean, it's, there's quite a bit of conversation about, I think it's called anorgasmia or just like, but the difficulty of having an orgasm, I feel like that is a conversation that is starting to be had more and more in circles of women and AFAB people, but it's really not that much of a conversation as far as I'm aware as 
a woman <laughs> among men. But, I mean, it's not one I hear about in pop culture or in, like, sexuality studies conversations much either. But, I mean, I imagine it's awfully similar, like, for, like, a lot of vagina havers, like, if you're not in a situation that you feel comfortable with, like, if the setting is wrong, like, it'll be really hard. And so, I mean... I might imagine that maybe like living in his parents' house, he might be, <laughs> he might have just been so nervous that he couldn't. Yeah, I think I think it was a mixture of nervousness, and I was a very experienced like I had launched I was grown but not grown like yeah. I had been introduced in that world a little way too early on so I've like pulled out all the stops I had lingerie on I and I was comfortable I was comfortable (laughs) with it and I like just like got on top and like did the damn thing and I just I didn't realize at at the time but looking back it was very performative like it was very it reminds me of almost when I did sex work later on in my 20s um because I'm thinking about how I kind of handled it. And I was just like, okay, it's time to do this now. Like, we have, like, it's time for me to do this. And I'm going to do this and you're going to really enjoy it. And then it'll be done. And then we did it. Um, and I, I think a lot of things play into that. But I also think on a very subconscious level, maybe he was able to pick up on that. And there was a time in our relationship because I had had some sexual abuse with previous, um, partners that like, we stopped having sex because, like, he could feel something was off. And I think for me, I think it was, like, my queerness trying to tell me, like, yo, this is obviously not how sex is supposed to be. You're not really in it. But I was just like, nope, this is what I have to do. This is how I have to do it. Um, and so I think in our earlier stages, maybe he was able to, like, sense that. Maybe. Uh, yeah. So. Did you ever come with him? No. Um does he think I did? Oh, yeah. <sighs> that sigh. And women across the world know that sigh. It's like the, oh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I hope that, I don't know. I hope that in the future, I, I don't know. I just wish the best for both of you. He's not here, but... <laughs> I'm I sure hope... he's fine. He's married. Oh, again? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's married. Um, like, fully legally this time. Marriage certificate and all. So I'm sure he's enjoying his life right now. Well, I hope she tells him whether or not she's coming. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the young man was blessed in the realm of young men. And he's a very, like, giving lover. Okay. And so, like... If I had to, like, draw the Adonises of, like, young, like, you know, puberty-based men and, like, sex game, homie was number one. Yeah. So, yeah. All so, right. well, some good foundational. Yeah. But sometimes, like, sometimes you're just gay and there's nothing you can do about that. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, awesome. Okay. So, would you please, you, you've told us a couple of really delightful anecdotes already. Would you please tell us about some of... The highlight. Oh, before we get into the highlights, will you tell me about the first time you had sex with a woman or AFAB person? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes, Could yes, be yes, yes. Included yes. In highlights. Yes. I mean, both, but I will go ahead and go on this. Um, oh gosh. The first time, and I'm going to say, because you know, sex with, with an AFAB individual, it's kind of like, what do you define as sex? For me, this was a person who, like, there was passion and emotion and, like, 
we were having sex, not just like, here, I think I'm eating a girl out. I don't really know. It was like sex, sex. And um, the first time I had sex with a woman, it was in a hotel room. <laughs> we didn't mean for it to be a hotel, but it was a hotel room. And we had had some heavy makeout sessions in my car after work. And it was like, it was insatiable. It was like, I was so hungry and I didn't even know why. And not like hungry for food, obviously. Like I had never felt so rawly attracted to someone before. I didn't know I could. And like, oh my gosh, it was, these makeout sessions were life changing. (laughs) Um, But then she suggested that, you know, we get a room at a hotel and then I stay the night with her. And I was like... I don't know, I don't know, okay, yeah, sure, I guess, and I was really nervous, and I was like, okay, and so we went in, and we just started going back to making out, and it was, it was crazy, because before, like, I just never felt as intense as ever with a man. And, and that's what I know as gay for one. But on the second half, it was like, here's a super soft, beautiful woman. And every time, like I'd had, I'd wanted to like kiss women or friends and stuff in college. And you know, like, I feel, I feel like fellow queer AFAB people or just queer people in general will hear this. But it's like, I had to tell myself no. There'd be times when like, you know, this girl who I had to crush on would cuddle me in college. Cause like, I guess that's what straight women do. And (laughs) I would have to be like, I'd want to kiss her so bad, but I'd have to be like, I couldn't. Like, I just had to like be like stone still. And I like never let myself really think about and enjoy like having sex with a woman and without it being like, I don't know, icky or like, I feel like very early on, a lot of women will be like, I just like women. It's not really a vagina thing. But as you become deeper and deeper into that like sexual experience with a woman, you feel less bad about loving a vagina and wanting and desiring a vagina and like nothing else. And I felt like early on, I felt a lot of shame and I wasn't, cause I wasn't ever able to let myself own that. Mm-hmm. But my first time having sex with this woman, that's exactly what I did. I unapologetically loved lesbian sex and it was, oh gosh, it was just, I came, like, four times. Wow. Good for you. I know. Oh, so, gosh. from, like, zero to four. Zero to four in an eye blink. And I was, it was, oh, it was just, it was, life, it was absolutely life-changing and continued to be life-changing sex. And it was in that moment that not only that I knew I was gay, but... Every joke about, like, the U-hauling lesbians and, like, women instantly jumping into relationships made sense because the amount of emotion that I was feeling for this person was, like, magnified times a billion. And I had never felt that with men. I was always kind of cold, as they would say. (laughs) And so for me in this moment... It was just, it was very life-changing, and I had some incredible sex, and then, like, to be able to, like, cuddle and kiss this naked body, like, afterwards, and it's this woman, and, like, oh, gosh. Yes, I was gay. It was was very much securing of that, and it was, it was great. And so, did this become a, like, a furthered romantic relationship, or was this This a... This became a furthered romantic relationship. Cool. 100%. 
incredible sex mm-hmm. made me realize how high my sex drive really was. Mm-hmm. Because previously, in my previous relationship with the guy I was telling you about, we would not have sex for like six, seven months. Wow. And I thought something was wrong with me. And little did I know. And this is why I feel like also like being able to like identify queer feelings is an important part of like talking to a kid. Because like for a long time, I'm sure there are lots of queer people who thought there was something wrong with them. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, it became a furthered romantic relationship. With lots of good sex. <laughs> yeah. Long partnership. Full yes. Happiness. Yeah. How cool. Um, would you like to share any other highlights of your sexual experience with us? Yeah. I would say a conversation that I'd like to be more normalized is physically a woman coming and like having like a discharge of some type mm-hmm. um, and multiple orgasms and like lesbian sex marathons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and so with the same partner that I was telling you about before, um, me and her had sex within that relationship a billion and one times, I'm sure. But there was a particular time where we got really into toys and things like that and, um, like strap ons. And I just remember, (laughs) this sounds so funny. I just remember being in a lost of sea of orgasms. Like, I remember, like, because women don't have to wait. There's no, like, recall time. And mm-hmm. so, like, orgasm after orgasm after orgasm and, like, almost feeling like, you know when your eyes roll back and you just melt in the bed? But, like, being in a sea of that, of just, like, overwhelmingly, like, meltiness for, like, hours and, like, cuddles and kisses and, like, sensual touches and holding, Mm -hmm. that was a new one for me. Like, there was a time where, like, when I would fake come with men, I was always, like, worried about my face. I'd be like, ugh. Like, I I would, like, look at the faces on porn stars and try and, like, make that face. Oh, no. I know. I didn't know what to do. (laughs) And so I knew that it was very different than, like, my face that would happen when I'd come whenever I was by myself. Um, And so when I was with this partner at first, I was very concerned with my face. But there's something about being with another woman that was just so natural that I wasn't worried about it. Every insecurity, A, was gone. Um, And then when I was having multiple orgasms, like... I wasn't worried, like, my body, I wasn't worried about, like, oh my gosh, is my arm here? Does my boobs like this? Is this, this, this? Like, I was with men. Like, my arm was flailing. Like, sheets were grabbed. Walls were being banged on. Like, I did not care. And I just remember that, I think on the sixth orgasm, I, like, physically came... Like, there was stuff that came out of me, and, like, that never happened to me. And, of course, I had, like, you know, I've watched porn, and I'd listened to the vagina monologues, right? And the the blah, blah, blah. And I've heard of the squirt. I've heard of the squirt, but I never, like, I didn't think I could do it. And lo and behold, it happened. And it was just, like, all those jokes about there being, like, a spot. Or, like, a soaking part of the mattress or something like that. I never thought it was real. I was like, I don't know what those women are drinking, but <laughs> listen, it's not going to be me. And I never understood those references in that respect. And now I completely do. And it's almost, oh, gosh. When I say life-changing sex, it was life-changing. All of the sex that we had was. And arguably, it was the seal of the dot for me, for my queer identity, mm-hmm. like the, the seal on the letter and the dot on the eye. I think being queer can be really hard to navigate. 
And especially when we have trauma, like so many queer women do, mm-hmm. and that our entire society has literally raised us to seek approval from men, it can be really hard to validate those feelings if they're not blatantly obvious. Yeah. And for me, and maybe it was me alone, or maybe a lot of other queer people feel this, but seeing how natural and just in the clouds I felt every time I was intimate with this woman just made me realize that I was unapologetically 100% gay. And then in that respect, being able to go down on a woman and enjoy it like I had never enjoyed sucking a dick before was just, it was also changing. Because I remember being in circles in college and girls would be like, I love sucking dick. Oh, yeah. And I'd be like, what do you mean? It's disgusting. It smells weird. And they want to choke you. And I just, I couldn't, could not, I could never get down with that. Um, And then like with a woman, I like found myself never wanting to leave her legs and I'd never ever experienced that in my life and so it was just it was very much a defining relationship in my life for me wow (laughs) I'm so happy for your discovery of this person and all that they've helped you discover about yourself I know me too for sure (laughs) (laughs) so we are getting closer to the end of our interview And my favorite, one of my favorite questions of the interview is this very big, broad question that you can really go in whatever direction you feel like going with. But from when you started to become sexually active at a young age and were having sex with boys and to where you are now, you, I mean, you have already addressed a lot of this, but... What have you learned about yourself and what have you learned about sex? How have you grown? Sex went from a thing that you saw on TV and a thing that I saw on TV, right? It went from this very dirty, raunchy, funny thing, performative thing that I felt like was a duty Mm -hmm. that like I was very careless with that I was very immature with and over time every time I thought because I was very I was a lot more mature and like sexually experienced than almost all of my peers and almost all of my partners so I was very much like I know these things I know sex yep I'm a master already and yes I may be only 15 but I already know it and I think the older I got the more I realized how little I knew And then when I changed genders of partners, I saw the beauty that it could be. You know, I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the emotional beauty that I had with my ex-husband, so to speak. And that was more so because I just wanted him to feel good. Whatever pain that he was having, I wanted it to stop. But it wasn't, it wasn't about me. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. And when you know as I grew older and I learned more and then I changed genders it was like sex went from this very like raunchy funny performative like duty to this like beautiful fluid flowy metamorphosis of a thing and it taught me that it just it 
taught me so much that kind of like these these things within hetero pop culture or like hetero culture where like women would often talk about them like their men would often talk about being addicted to women or like being addicted to or like the pussy's just so good or like they'd be like the dick is just so good and I never related mm-hmm. I never understood that I was never like oh my gosh I just can't say no that was I was like, skirt, the answer is no, leave me alone. (laughs) Um, And so now, as I'm older and, you know, I think I'm having the experiences that I should have been having in the first place, I feel that. I know what that feels like. I'm like, I'm insatiable, like I said at the beginning. Like, it just, it, it became this thing where I was like, I could never have enough. And not in a weird addictive way, but in this very like beautiful intrinsic way of not only am I like physically feeling good, but also I'm getting able to like feel and experience this person. And I don't know if it's out of maturity or a differently like raised consciousness, but it made sex something completely different and new. Even if it was just like a one night stand. I think it's because my appreciation for women, which was very deeply buried finally rose and I I realized that I can unapologetically find these people beautiful in a very sexual way and own that Mm -hmm. and now whether it's a relationship or a one night stand there's just so much beauty in women that I just find alluring alluring and irresistible I'm so glad (laughs) (laughs) Did you suspect as a child at all that you were queer? Oh, absolutely. Oh, in yeah. fact, in fact, in fact, here's the funny part. Came out, so came out to my cousins, who's nine months older than me. Um, shout out to her. Hopefully she'll hear this. Came out to her. I think I was like nine. Had my first kiss of lady when I was seven at YMCA camp during nap time. Oh. Came out to my dad, who I was estranged from when I was 12 years old, when I had first acknowledged I had a crush on the woman who later had helped me put my toe into sex work mm. at 14 later realized that I was in love with her um 15 had a crush on my best friend in high school while I was with my partner mm. uh, that I was telling you about I mean it was just and then at 15 I started identifying as pansexual mm-hmm. but then at 15 I discovered tumblr and the l word and it was just <laughs> it just was just Waiting. It was just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I had had experiences, but I also, like, didn't know that I subconsciously taught myself to, like, be like, oh, that's nothing. It means nothing. Or, like, negatively, like, make them. Um, and then, finally, in my 20s, it just happened. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Okay, this makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, a lot of sense now. It does. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have any closing statements or words of advice for our listeners words of advice um i would say that above all else just listen to your body above all else just Listen to and focus on every feeling you have. If you're ever confused, if you don't know what's going on, your body's going to tell you, just like it does in any other like health situation. When you're having sex and you're wondering why you're not having an orgasm or, you know, why you can or why you can't or whatever, and you're just confused, listen to your body and it will tell you, A, 
to fucking chill out. (laughs) (laughs) And B, um, it'll just remind you to listen to it more and hopefully give you that answer. So those are my closing words. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a complete delight and adventure. And thank you. Absolutely, Robin. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Peak, which is hosted and produced by me, Robin. Our theme music was written by Johnny Manchild of Johnny Manchild and the Poor Bastards. You can follow us on Facebook or at our website, thepeak.blueberry.net. That's thepeak.blubrry.net. If you have a question or comment about anything we talked about today, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, send me an email at thepeakpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.